0: Let's go ahead then and please turn to the Gospel of John. As you know, we are looking at the Gospel of John. We're just coming to the end of the first week of of Jesus' ministry. He's just started in in full-time ministry, as it were, and we're just coming to the end of his first week. That first week has been going from verse 19 of chapter 1, and it will actually go to the end of verse 11 of John chapter 2. The first week of Jesus' ministry starts with the Gospel with John the Baptist, Pointing to Jesus, saying, Behold, the Lamb of God, the one who comes to take away the sin of the world. It's, a, it's an incredible declaration, a beholding of the Messiah, the Son of God, the one that everybody has been waiting for in all of mankind. It then continues on with Jesus calling his first disciples, something a rabbi just wouldn't usually do. Usually they would go to the rabbi, but, but Jesus goes after them and he calls them and sets them apart and calls them to himself for ministry. And then we come to Jesus' first miracle, which is what we have here. There's 37 miracles recorded in the Bible, and this, as far as we're aware, is is the first one that Jesus ever did. And so I've called this message, When the Wine Runs Out, and let's read chapter 2 from verse 1 through to 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I thank you for your word. Your word is sharper than a double-edged sword. Your word sears into our heart and soul's. And your word can change lives in a moment. And so, Lord, as we behold you today in your word, would you would you reveal yourself afresh to us? Holy Spirit, would you come and do what you love to do, namely exalting Christ? And so, Lord, would we see you? And would we be freshly amazed with you? And would we leave this place rejoicing that we have indeed beheld the Lamb? In Jesus' name, amen. You know, for me, I, I love weddings. I, I just really enjoy them for so many different reasons. Some people hate weddings, but I, I really like weddings. And I just find weddings just all the way through just exhilarating. I mean, first of all, you have the ceremony, don't you? And you see a man and a woman coming together and they are so loved up. It is off the radar, but they are so excited To be getting married, the bridegroom stands at the front and the bride comes down and he is in tears. He's just amazed at how beautiful she looks and she's trying to pretend that I don't look so good, but I suppose I do. And she's coming down and just the emotion builds and the ceremony takes place and as a minister, it's just wonderful because you're standing right beside them and you're seeing them, just their their interactions with each other and their joy in one another as they're committing their lives to, to live for Jesus together. I love the emotion of that ceremony, I love what takes place, but I also love the the after effects, the stuff that comes after, the feasting, and the drinking, and the spending time with family and friends, the laughter that usually fills the halls around weddings and all that comes with it. Weddings are always just exhilarating moments, and this wedding that we see here in John chapter 2 is no different. This is indeed an, an exhilarating moment for all that are taking part in this wedding, See, in Jewish tradition, weddings were a massive deal. To a Jew, a wedding celebration was considered to be one of the most grand events in all of life. And as you looked at how they really dealt with it, it was indeed a grand event. Usually the wedding would take place a late afternoon, and then the celebrations would last seven days. So you and all the guests would take seven days out of your life, Not only to enjoy the ceremony, but then to celebrate with this couple for the next seven full-on days. And this wedding seems to be, on the face of it, going really, really well. Jesus is there. Mary's there. And five of Jesus' disciples are, are there. And it is indeed shaping up to be a good one. It is clearly exhilarating. The ceremony has taken place. Celebrations have begun. And all is going well until something disastrous happens. The wine runs out. I mean, this is a massive oversight. The wine should never be running out, but the wine runs out. And this is a massive oversight because in Jewish tradition, this was a monumental deal. You see, if the wine ran out today at a wedding, people would probably be disappointed. But you know, There you go, you get to some weddings, there's not even wine. And fair enough, that's not the end of the world. But in Jewish tradition, this was monumental what had taken place. The wine running out would be absolutely obscene to them. There would be a contemporary rabbi saying that without wine, there is no joy. That's how seriously they took their wine. And in Jewish tradition, a lawsuit could be made against the bridegroom if the wine runs out. They took this seriously. And so the wine running out was clearly a massive deal. These guys are in serious trouble. And so Mary, Jesus' mum. He's clearly concerned about what is taking place. And she knows for a fact that her son is a seriously resourceful guy. See, it's commonly known that Jesus' dad, Joseph, died probably when Jesus was in his teen years. So he trained his boy to be a carpenter, something that Jesus had gone on to do. So Jesus by himself is a blue-collar worker. He swings a hammer for a living. He spends time using things for the glory of God, trying to work out how to be resourceful with all that is before him as a carpenter. Mary knows this. As she sits down. Jesus says, "Listen, son, you got you got to do something. I know you. You're a resourceful young man. Think of something. Do something to help." Jesus' response in verse four seems seems a little harsh. I mean, he calls a woman, and in our culture, you think you call your mum "woman." You're going to get a slap across the face. It's not going to go very well. But in this culture, that was a real term of endearment. To call your mum "woman" was actually very kind and very reflective, as you embraced your mum in that in that tradition. And Jesus commits indeed to helping his mum, and to helping what has taken place through the resources. But I don't think anybody was expecting that he would do what he went on to do. He instructs the servants to get six stone water jars together. He instructs them to fill them to the brim with water and then draw on the water and pass it on to the master of the feast. Well, they do exactly that. Just like Jesus' mama said, do whatever he says. They do exactly what Jesus says and then something incredible happens that water turns into wine not just any wine but the best wine for everybody knew that you bring the you know you bring the best stuff out first and everybody enjoys that but then they start enjoying it a bit too much so you bring out the rubbish stuff and it's cheap and you get away with it but this wine is the best wine that's why they're so shocked they can't believe that you would save this great wine till the end as the celebration goes on not just the best wine and not just wine but wine that is absolutely in abundance see when you work this out in those jars there were between 120 and 180 gallons usually at a jewish wedding there would be around 60 people for these 60 people jesus has produced between 700 and 1100 bottles of the best wine you are ever going to imagine that's our god that's who he is so much, it's so easy in, in evangelical tradition to think we have a God who would serve, change the wine into water, and then we can just make do. But not this one. The God of Scripture rocks up, and He makes abundant, best wine, and starts to distribute it amount among the people to bless them and to give them great favor. What happens? Well, the groom is hailed as a hero. They are basically carrying him aloft. One minute he thinks he's going to be sued, the next minute everybody is just saying, well, you are amazing. You have just produced this quality wine and you've just blessed us in this way. I can't even believe it. And the disciples in verse 11 also do something significant. They believe in Jesus. They realize this really is him. This is the Lamb of God. This is the Messiah. This is him. He created wine from water. This is God. See, even on the face of it, I think this is a great story, eh? It's just such a cool story of seeing this very first miracle roll out before the Saviour as He turns such massive quantities of water into the best wine. And yet it's when you realize the symbolism that is contained within this story and the significance of this symbolism that this story really begins to sing. See, this story isn't really about wine at all. It's an illustration. Let me explain. John chapter 20, verse 30 through 31 says this. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. John has already told us that I want to show you Jesus. I want to show you Jesus so that you can believe He is the Son of God. And then I want your experience to be life. I want the fruit to come out of what is taking place in this. I want it to be life. In John chapter 10, verse 10, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, Jesus says. But I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. The whole premise of this book is John wants us to experience this abundant life that Jesus is bringing and offering. And so what is taking place here in John chapter 2? What is taking place? Is he seeking to show us that this really is the Son of God? That God can change water into wine? Is that what primarily this story is about? No, not really. It's not primarily about that. What John is trying to do is show us a miracle that illustrates the very mission of Jesus Christ. See, the key to understanding this story is simply this. Wine to a Jewish traditional time signified joy and life. And the wines run out. What John is trying to do then is use this first miracle as an illustration of the very mission of Jesus Christ. The mission of Jesus. If you want to know what this chapter is about in one sentence, it's simply this. It's about the mission of Jesus. The one who steps into a world of limited and unlasting joy to offer a greater joy a joy that is truly abounding and satisfying and that will never run out. See, it is no accident that John is choosing this miracle of water into wine. It is no accident that he is doing that. Everything he pens is very deliberate so that we would see that Jesus is God and that in doing that we may believe in him and have life in his name. Everything he does in this entire book, that is always where he points to us. And so it is no accident then that He illustrates and uses then this grand miracle of water into wine. This is not just a natural story. This is a symbolic story. This is a symbolic story of a God who comes into a world of limited and unlasting joy to offer a greater joy. A joy that truly is abounding and satisfying and that will never run out. And it's when we realize that that this story really begins to sing. And as we listen to its song, then there's three things that I believe John wants us to grasp and that I believe the Savior wants us to grasp as we examine these truths. Here's the first one. Worldly joy, like worldly wine, inevitably runs out. That's where this story begins. It begins with wine running out. But here's the symbolism. Worldly joy, like worldly wine, inevitably runs out you see whether we like it or not it would seem that no matter who you are and what you actually do there comes a time for all of us when the joys and exhilarations of life simply run out don't they they don't fascinate us like they once did they don't shine to us and dazzle us like they once did. They they simply at some point in our lives run out just like the wine did here in john chapter 2 in the long term we know that to be true right because we know we're all going to die and we try and ignore it, but we can't ignore it because it's a fact. And one of the things I get to do as a pastor is is, is bury people. You you go through their memorial services, you go through their funerals, and so it's for me. I get very close to a, a coffin because when you're standing there, they are they're they're right here, and it all goes back in the box one day for every one of us in this room. One day the worldly wine will completely run out for us, and we will stand before the Lord and give an account for our lives. And What happens in that moment makes such a difference in all of eternity. So in the long term, we know that that the wine is going to run out. But the truth is, in the short term, it it does too. And I think we all experience that to some degree or another. See, we hope for things and we work for things, don't we? And then we get those things. But if you're like me, you find that those things don't satisfy you in the way you thought they would. Have you ever found that? That's what it is to have the wine of this world running out. And for hundreds of years, mankind has been finding that to be true. For hundreds of years, mankind has been finding that the very things that they hope for, the very things in creation that they are so desperate for, that they assume that if I just get it, I will be satisfied and live my life to the max. They get it, and it doesn't quite satisfy in the way they thought it once would. One of the first ones of those guys to discover this was King Solomon. 3,000 years ago, King Solomon walked the earth and he really was the ultimate pleasure seeker. I mean, he was incredibly wealthy. It was said that Solomon's wealth was so vast that from taxes alone per year, he would earn 25 tons of gold. One man... 25 tons of gold 3,000 years ago. This guy was incredibly wealthy. And so he used his wealth really to entertain himself to death. He used his wealth to find ways of enjoying this world so that he could be satisfied in this world. And he gave absolutely both barrels to it as you review his life. He loved to party. You think you're a good partier? You've got nothing on King Solomon. This dude absolutely loved to party. He had a 35,000 strong entourage that he could call on at any point to party with him. That's a lot of people. But he wanted to be in the midst of a massive amount of people partying, believing that if I can just be with them and they can experience great joy, that I'll be able to enjoy through them. He loved music. And so he hired many professional musicians, musicians that would follow him around. And so he would just stop at a different point and, okay, give me flute right now. He probably never asked for clarinet. But every other instrument, I'm sure they were right up there with him. And they wanted him to be a part of what he was doing because they just loved to play. And he believed that if I could just hear this thing, then I'd probably be joyful. He loved comedians he hired comedians. He had stand-up guys. He had pull-my-finger guys. He had mime guys. He had the works. Whatever he needed at different times, he suggested that if I stand there, okay, I want to be entertained by you right now, that if you can just receive that, that he'll be able to enjoy the world and that it will be truly great. He loved architecture. He built a lot of things. He sought to build a house for God. He built many other buildings. He bought incredible great gardens He bought animals. He loved animals. He owned a lot of animals. It says that he had thousands of farm animals. He had exotic pets that he imported from different places in the world to bring him pleasure. He loved sex. He was a red-blooded male. He had 700 wives in case he got bored. He wanted 700 wives. In case he got bored of those 700 wives, he had 300 concubines. So this dude has 1,000 women to choose from his whole life. This guy truly is the ultimate pleasure seeker. And because of his wealth, he has the ability to do it. Do you know what he then says about his life? In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, at the end, having reviewed all that he's got, this is what he says. Meaningless. Meaningless. It's all meaningless. Wow. He had it all. It wasn't enough. It was empty something was was missing the wine was running out on him and he couldn't do anything about it he knew it true so i think we can hear that and we can think yeah but if i just had a bit of that i'd probably be happier it's the same thing though we seek to find joy in things more recently as you review historical figures you realize nothing has changed in the last three thousand years the wine runs out for everybody so jim morrison to Jimi hendrix Elvis to Kurt Cobain, Michael Jackson to Amy Winehouse, more recently Whitney Houston. People who you perceive, they've got it all. They've got everything. They have got wealth and popularity and fame. People worship the very ground they walk on. But so often their life ends with the thing placarded over their life just to say, what, what happened? When did the wine run out for them? Why didn't they enjoy the things that, they, that I want. What has taken place in their lives. And the truth is we all experience this to some degree, don't we? We all experience what it is like to really want something and get it, but then before long the wine just runs out to it. You see it with children at Christmas, don't you? You get your child a present. You've been saving up for it for about six months, but it's the specific thing they want. And so they get it and they unwrap it and they are at 9 a.m. in the morning absolutely ecstatic about this gift. This is the best thing they've ever had until they notice what their sisters got. That was clearly the thing they really wanted. So now this present sucks. It is absolutely sucking. They've been looking forward to it all year, but now it's absolutely rubbish. And then they go to their cousin's house in the afternoon and they just hate you as parents as they realize, you don't even care about me. Look at this gift. You know what I mean? And then those children become adults. And we do exactly the same. We crave the latest iPad, and we get the iPad, the iPad 2, and we are thrilled with the iPad 2 until they introduce iPad 3, and you think iPad 2 is rubbish, why did I not, would this will not satisfy, I need iPad 3, you get a new TV, I bought a new TV last year, I was absolutely thrilled with it, the biggest TV I've ever had in my life is about that big, and I bought a 51 inch TV. I was so excited about this TV. I erected it on the wall. It was just, I'm just so excited about this TV. And just recently, I went, I went into the shop with um, Simon, and we were looking at TVs for him. And I saw my TV, and I thought, this is a really great TV. But then I noticed, to my left, there were bigger TVs than my TV. And the longer along the line I got, I, I came home and said to him, we need a bigger TV. I mean, this is just not going to work out. Things that we've been saving up for, things that we get excited about, they, they lose their shine oh so quickly. Not only stuff, but, but other things in our lives. The career that we've worked for all our lives. We've done our HSC, we've done our exams, we've done our university years, we've done the hard yards in our career, and that we can't understand why our husband or our wife doesn't worship the ground we walk on, because I made it! But no one really cares the very thing that we think is going to satisfy us, that is going to bring us the joy that we've so desired, before we know it, we're lying in our bed realizing this can't be it. It's got to be more than this. Something is missing. We crave to move to Australia. We're so excited about moving to Australia. And you move to Australia and you realize it rains here as well. And it loses its, its shine. You're a single guy and you crave to be married. You're so looking forward to being married. You're convinced. That if you can just get married, you would be fulfilled in your life. You would be satisfied in your life. You would have all the joy that humanity could possibly throw at you. And for the honeymoon, that is true. (laughs) But then you come home and you realize, my wife sins. I'm appalled. I thought I married Jesus. And you find that, why why does she do these things? Why does she leave those shoes there? Is it just to wreck my life? I mean, can they not just go in straight lines? What is the problem with this? And you realize that the very things you're craving for, they're not the reality. And in all reality, sinners have said, I do. And so she's getting pretty fed up with what you do with the toothpaste too. And then you have children thinking, "If I can, the best way to reconcile my marriage would be to have children. If I have children, we will be fulfilled as a married couple. We will have all that we desire in life. And so we have a child. God provides a child. And we love this child. For the first seven days, it's an amazing child. But then it starts to keep us awake at night. And then you think... Is it legal to put children on eBay? And before you know it, you just think, we just need babysitters. I'm just so jealous of people who don't have, they don't even have children. Look, they can go to the cinema whenever they want. And you realize there must be more to life than this. The things we crave, whether we like it or not, the wine runs out on every last one of them. They're just not enough. We think that if I just get this, I will be satisfied. And yet in all reality, we never are. We always realize something is missing. There must be more to life than this. There must be more. Good though these things are, there must be so much more to life than this. Well, the truth of Scripture is that something really is missing in our lives. Something is very missing. And in all reality, we were made for far more than this. We were made for things far beyond what we presently experience in this world see a few weeks ago i mentioned as an illustration about the hundred plus pilot whales that got stranded on farewell spit on the new zealand south island we looked together at what really that looked like and, and this week i was just reviewing it again i actually found the photo again that i'd put into my first message and i was just looking again at this pilot whale on the beach and the truth is, the more you look at it, the more you realize, that is just so not right. You see, this whale, and these whales were made for so much more than this. These whales were made to swim in the ocean. They were, ma- they were made by God to be these great creatures of the ocean, swimming miles and miles and miles, on occasions, jumping from the water, to just display God's glory as you see the majesty of these incredible creatures. And yet, when they get beached, they look so out of place. And you can't help but look and realize they were made for so much more than this. One rescuer said, as he was trying to rescue these different whales, that now and again they would make sounds to each other as they just realized this, this can't be right. One of the, guys, one of the other guys rescued said that every now and again they would just panic and they would start flapping their tail or try and move their head to try and get back to the water as they realized I'm so out of place. But in all reality, they they couldn't. These whales are indeed stranded. They were made for the ocean, but they can't get back to the ocean. They need a rescuer. And that is their only hope. Their only hope is to have one who will come and take them, and take them back to the ocean that they were made for. Well, I used that illustration then in the same way I'm using it now. I'm using it to help us see that folks just like those whales... We were made for far more than this too. We are those whales. We're just like those whales. We are, by God's grace, sadly because of our sin, stranded. We were made to swim in the oceans of God's love. We were made to be with Him and encounter Him and enjoy Him and delight ourselves in Him for all all of eternity and to be with God, finding our fulfillment and our energy and our peace and our joy in Him. But in sin, we exchanged the Creator for the created. And we got stranded. And so all of this world is the beach. Now and again, we make sounds to each other, calling out, you know. Why does this suck? What is, what is wrong with this? And on the beach, we try and find ways of making it a little bit better. So we buy our TVs. And we buy our iPads. And we try and get some relational intimacy going. We try and do what we can. But all along, we know something must be missing. I must be made for more than this. Is this it? And just like those whales, we too need a rescuer. We can't get back. Because of our sin, we are cut off from the ocean. Because of our sin, we are unable to be with the God who made us. We rejected Him. My friends, in grace, that is exactly why Jesus Christ came. We do need a saviour. We do need a rescuer. We have a saviour and we have a rescuer. And his name is Jesus. See, that's what this whole book is about. 2,000 years ago, the pre-existing eternal one became man on the greatest rescue mission ever told. The pre-existing one who breathed forth the galaxies, who breathed life into the first Adam, then takes on life for himself. He takes on flesh and tissue and bone and a mouth and arms and a legs and he is born into the squalor of a borrowed stable. He then lives a perfect life and interacts with people. And at the age of 33, he then dies on a cross, not in tragedy, but in absolute triumph, declaring, this is finished. What I came for is now done. What did he come for? What did he come to do? I'll tell you what he's come to do. Knowing that this worldly wine will inevitably run out, he's come to provide a joy and an abundant life that you were made for, but that you can't get back to. He came to die on your cross, on your cross, for your punishment of your sin, so that you, through faith in Him, could be lifted up and taken back to the ocean of God's love that you were always made for and defined for. That's the gospel. And that's what this glorious book is about. The cost to Jesus was indeed massive. It would cost Him His life the one who should have indeed been hailed as the king, the one who should have had every knee bow before him when he enters the word, has now hanged himself on a cross, and with his arms outstretched, there is indeed a placard above his name, saying, Jesus, the king of the Jews, how ironic he is. He's the king of the world. And yet, he died in our place so that we could have life and life in abundance. Worldly joy, like worldly wine, inevitably runs out. But Jesus came for something more. And that's point two. Number two, Jesus made a way for us to experience an abounding joy that will never run out. That's why he came. He came that we may experience an abounding joy that indeed will never run out. You see, the wine that Jesus has to offer is not only the best wine. It is not only the ocean of God's love that you were made for. It is not only to know that you are indeed saved. It is not only the best wine that he has come to provide for us. It is also an abounding wine. We need to bottom that out. We serve a generous God. We do not serve one who stands behind a curtain and says, what, you need life? Okay, here's a little bit. We serve one who says, you want life? Have it, and have it in abundance. And when you've drank that, I've got way more for you. He comes to give us the best wine, and he comes to give us that wine in absolute abundance. see, to embrace the abundant life that Jesus came to give us, to embrace the abundant life that Jesus offers, is to know the joy that we are forgiven of our sin. It's to know with great joy a life that screams and eludes a joy that knows I'm forgiven. It is scandalous grace, but I am. All the things that I've committed in my life, they have been removed as far as the east is from the west. God has taken them in His entire grace, and He has removed them from me through Jesus' death on the cross in my place. To know this abundant life is to know you've been reconciled to God. To know that the One who made you and sustains you has now brought you back to Himself. You're able to spend time with the God who knitted you together in your mother's womb, who made you and designed you to find pleasure and peace and grace in you. He's made a way through the cross to be you to be reconciled to him. Not only as a person who's going to have to fit in or sit at the back, but as one who is indeed adopted into the very family of God. See, we can walk through life in peace and grace and faith, not because of us, but because God says, listen, once an enemy... Not anymore. Now you my son. Now you sit at my table. For when I see you, I see you clothed in the righteousness of your son, my son. So you are your family now. For I will hem you in both behind and before. I will watch over your coming and your going. I will sing over you and delight in you. For nothing will harm you by day and nothing will harm you by night. Because I am your father. To know the joy of abundant life is to know then the family that God gives us. He doesn't just save us and call us to go off and be lone rangers for Jesus, trying to do things singularly. He brings us into the context of local churches, where we can link arms together and do life together, where we can weep together and rejoice together and laugh together and confess together and fellowship together up until the day when we die and then we go on to enjoy fellowship with the maker of heaven and earth. See, folks, for all those who have put their faith in Jesus, this abundant life does not finish here on earth. It barely begins here on earth. It is an abundant life to come in our eternal home, a place that is known as heaven, a place where there will be no more pain, no more handicaps, no more cancer, no more AIDS, no more heart attacks, no more blindness or deafness or liver failure, no more asthma, no more sin, no more rape, no more theft, No more murder, no more death, no more crying or pain or corruption. But instead, our eternal home, the abundant life that we have been made for, that we have been returned to by Jesus Christ, is to spend eternity in a place that is filled with laughter. What is it going to be like to hear God laugh? What is it going to be like to say something or overhear Him and hear His thunderous laugh rip across the heavenly realms as we enjoy His comfort and His amusement? A place called heaven where they'll be feasting and drinking together. In some ways, a wedding in a dim shadow form is to reflect what we are to experience on that day. For we are all being made as a local church into a wedding. Into a wedding feast for the Lamb. Where we ultimately do indeed get joined in all eternity, for all eternity with the greatest bridegroom of all, Jesus Christ. It will be paradise there. Everything that you see on this earth, glaciers, Beaches, seas, deserts, grass. They're just a dim shadow of what will be there to embrace us on that day. And in that moment, we will have new bodies to enjoy it. We'll be able to run and walk and see and hear and taste in a way that we never were able to fully in this environment. People from every tribe and language and nation will be there. But most wonderfully of all, Jesus will be there. The one who made it possible for us to go there He will be there to welcome us home. Folks, that's abundant life. That's what it means. Worldly joy, like worldly wine, inevitably runs out. It inevitably runs out. But Jesus came so that there may be a way for us to experience a joy that will never run out. An abounding joy. An abounding joy of forgiveness. And a bounty joy of reconciliation, and a bounty joy of adoption, and family, and the truths of heaven. And here's the third point this joy, this abundant life, is absolutely free. See, this is scandalous grace, but it's all here in John chapter 2. How much did they pay for this wine? How much did the guests have to perform to get this wine? Did they pay anything? No. Did they have to perform for it? No. Did they have to do things for charity to try and earn the wine? No. Did they have to go to church and pray and read their Bible in order to get the wine? Nope. Did they have to tell lots of people about Jesus to get the wine? No. Did they have to do fellowship together and confess their sins together and rejoice together and laugh together? No. No, the wine was was free. They just had to receive it. As the master of the feast draws it out and he offers it to them, they just have to take it. My friends, worldly wine, like worldly joy, inevitably runs out. But Jesus came to offer a joy and abounding life that will never run out. And in scandalous grace, it is absolutely free just have to receive it. And that, my friends, is what the gospel is all about. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, so that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Do I have to do all these different things? Is Christianity meaning that if I just do all these things, if I read my Bible and I pray and I rejoice together and I sing some songs, is this going to help me get into heaven? Is this going to help me? Earn this joy? Never. No, you're just the whale on the beach. The only way back is faith in Jesus Christ alone. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that whoever believes in him, whoever truly believes that you are the saviour of the world, you are the son of God, and so I put my faith in you as my Lord and saviour. God so loved the world that he gave his son so that whoever does that should not perish, but instead would enjoy eternal life, the life that Jesus came to give us. You know, folks, even on the face of it, this story is a great one, isn't it? It's a wonderful story of a miracle of abounding water turning into abounding wine. Even on the face of it, this is a great story. And yet this story really brings us to sing when you realize the symbolism of it and the significance that the wine is life. And it is then that we realize then that this story is all about the mission of Jesus, the one who steps into our world of limited and unlasting joy to offer a greater joy. A joy that is abounding and satisfying and that will never run out. And so here's my question to you then in closing. See, the Apostle John is not just interested in filling our heads with theology. He's actually very interested in experience. And so here's the question. Are you genuinely experiencing this joy that Christ offers? Are you? Are you genuinely experiencing this joy that Christ offers? See, it's so easy on a Sunday morning to listen with theology in line. And we should. But if we just do that in the Gospel of John, we miss something. Because the Gospel of John is not primarily about just theology. The Gospel of John is about theology and experience. For he is beholding the Son of God to us because he wants us to behold the Son of God. Why? So that we may believe in him. Why? So that we may have life in his name. He wants us to experience the abundant life that Jesus came to bring. He wants us to know the joy of the gospel. He wants us to know with great affection the life which Jesus came to give us. And so do I. That's what I so want for us as a local church. I don't just want it to be an experience where we go, oh, it's very good, it's true, yes, very nice. No, I want it to grip our souls. I want us to be affected in our bodies where we come away thinking, yes, Jesus is amazing. Look what he did. He came after us to a world where the wine runs out and He died in our place so that I may be forgiven and reconciled and adopted and may enjoy family and that I may know that heaven is my home. This is scandalous grace and it fills me with joy. That's the true effect of John. Not just a, oh yes, very good, interesting. Mm -hmm." Are you genuinely experiencing the joy that Christ offers? Listen, maybe some of you are. I trust many of you are. And if you are experiencing this joy, then praise God. I'm thrilled. I am. And I'll keep preaching to you week after week because I want you every week to realize God is amazing. But maybe for some of you, you're not. Hand on heart, you're not experiencing this joy that it's talking about here. And you see it, and there's something so attractive about it, but that's not where you're living right now. See, maybe for some of you, you're an unbeliever. Maybe for some of you here today, you you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. This whole idea of taking him as your Lord and Savior, that's not your story thus far. Well, folks, I want to encourage you that if that is you, you will never be able to experience that which you were truly made for. You were made for the ocean. But you're like a beached whale on New Zealand Island. And you can't get back. But Jesus Christ came to bring you back. He came on a rescue mission to rescue you so that you could return to the God who made you and find life and life in abundance in His name. That is why He came. He came to rescue you back to that which you were made for. And so if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I want to encourage you then. Believe in Him today. This day I put before you life and death. Choose life. Choose life. How do you do that? You do that simply by taking Him as your Lord and Savior. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That means you make Him your King. And you believe in your heart that He rose from the dead. That means that He becomes your Savior. When you do that, this abundant life is yours. And if you do that, let us know. Because we want to help you more in your abundant life. We want to help you see more and more of what Jesus Christ has come to do for you. And if you don't know Jesus, your Lord and Savior, then today, before you go home, I pray that you will, even as we sing at the end, just cry out to God, even in your mind, Lord, I put my faith in you. Please forgive me of my sin. I put my faith in you. And you will know that abundant life. For many of you here today, you are believers. And maybe as a believer, in all reality, you know that you can experience this joy. But in reality... You're not. And if you're honest, and you attended a life group, and the leader said, are you experiencing this joy? A truthful answer would be, no. I'm not. I I want to, but I'm not. I I think I should be, but I ain't. Well, listen, in closing, I I want to pass to you. I want to pass to you individuals. See, I want to say this as sensitively as possible, but you need to hear it. When we are lacking in our experience of joy, it is never, ever because Jesus Christ has moved on. He doesn't. Jesus Christ is there. The Spirit of Jesus resides in your heart. Jesus Christ is singing over you. He is amazed with you. He loves to embrace you. It is never. We are never lacking in experience of joy because God has deserted us. I know from my own life and I know from having just been a Christian a long time that the reason why we don't experience joy on occasions is never because Jesus Christ has moved on. You know why it is? It's because we've moved on. We've moved. The first love that saved us, that amazed us when we got saved, doesn't amaze us anymore. We've We've moved. We've moved away from him. Sometimes I think we do that deliberately. Sometimes we move on deliberately. The bright lights of the world look so attractive. And so we get entrapped in sin and we pursue that sin because in reality we just think it will bring us more pleasure than what it will do in following Christ. So we're going to go for that. But as a result, when the worldly wine runs out, we then feel so empty and we wonder, where has Jesus gone? he He hasn't gone anywhere. But you rejected him and you moved on. You moved away as you pursued things in the world. and But so often, I think we don't move on deliberately. I think if you're like me, we move on distractedly. We move on because we get distracted. Our lives get busy with lots of things and... Before we know it, we haven't got time to, to spend time with the Savior, the one who spins the galaxies and died in our place. We just feel that we're too busy to, to really encounter Him and be with Him. And so week after week, we start to be we feel fat for Jesus, but in reality, we're anorexic for Jesus. We're not spending time with Him. We're not encouraging Him. We're not, we're not being with Him. And then we can feel in our hearts that He's probably moved away from us. But in all reality, He hasn't. We've moved away from Him. Instead of being with Him and sitting with Him where He can minister to the wine to our bodies, we're long gone. We're too busy for that. And so we try and fit Him in once a month, maybe if we're lucky, but that's about it. But our whole premise is, well, where's He gone? You see, when we lack joy in Jesus, it's never because He's moved on. It's because we have. And if that's you, I believe this is the Word of God to you today. Listen. Luke 10, verse 41 to 42. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. You want to know what you do when you're lacking joy in Christ, when you're lacking the experience of forgiveness and reconciliation and adoption, when you are lacking the amazement of what he has done for you. When you're anxious and troubled about many things, just like Martha was, here's what you do. You come back and you sit at the feet of Christ again. For one thing is necessary, he says. What is that one thing? He's just said it in a few verses earlier. Mary is there seated at the feet of Jesus. She just wants time with him. She just wants time with the Savior, praying to him and talking to him and and listening to him and that is affecting her whole perspective and worldview. She is becoming more and more amazed with Jesus because she's spending time with him. And so folks, if you are not experiencing this joy, I want to encourage you then, come back and sit at the feet of Christ. Come back. And as you do, I assure you, you will once again find joy in his name. You will. It just needs... Listen, even on the face of it, this is a great story. But when you understand the symbolism, it really does begin to sing. Worldly joy like worldly wine, it inevitably runs out. But Jesus comes to offer us a life, a joy that is abounding and sincere and satisfying and will never run out and it is absolutely free. And so I want to encourage us all then, let us be a people then who revolve around sitting at the feet of Jesus. Let's not move on from the joy giver. Let us get our seat real close. And as we then do life with Jesus, the true life giver, day after day after day, would this be our story? Joy. And would joy then truly be our theme? Let's pray. And if the band could come up. Well, Lord, I I pray first of all for those who have been affected by my closing comments there. Lord, I believe you you put that on my heart for a reason. I said, Lord, I pray for all those who in all reality are not experiencing this joy. Lord, for those that don't know you, I, I pray that they would come to know you. Lord, would you do something that no preacher ever can? Would you open blind eyes to behold you in your glory? Lord, did you call specific names and would lives be changed before the end of today? And Lord, for those who do know you that aren't experiencing this joy, Lord, would they review their lives and would they come to terms that they need to sit at your feet? We weren't made to do this walk alone. We were made to remain in the vine. Lord, help us to do that then. And Lord, for those that haven't experienced Your joy for some time, I pray even this week, then would they come to experience that joy again? Would it be sweet wine to their taste as they experience the abounding life and joy that You have for them? But Lord, as we close, I I do thank You more just for all that You've done. Lord, we were the whales cut off from You; we were stranded; we had rejected You and chosen the beach instead of the ocean. And yet worldly wine, like worldly joy, it it ran out. And in grace then you came after us. And you came to die on a cross so that we may have life and life in abundance. Lord, how can we thank you enough? For our lives were lost. We were chained up and we were gone and yet you in grace came and broke those chains and you came to seek and find us and then you saved us. Lord, would we never tire then of saying thank you. Would we never tire of rejoicing in you for you are the true joy giver. And so would all praise the Lord. All praise. Always good to you.